The sun rises over the San Joaquin Valley, California. Today is August 28, 2020. The Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine recently published the characteristics of primary care physicians, or PCPs, associated with prescribing potentially inappropriate medication, or PIMs, for elderly patients. Medicare data from more than 100,000 PCPs was analyzed. The sample included specialists in family medicine, internal medicine, geriatrics, and general practice. PCPs more likely to prescribe PIMs were, on average, older male DOs and practicing in the South and have a smaller Medicare patient panel. The study also found that PIM rates have been decreasing over time, so don't forget to review your beer's criteria when prescribing medications to your elderly patients. Mmm, beers. Oh, right. I'm supposed to say something intelligent right now. Cancer and, and uh, VTE normally mean low molecular weight heparin, a.k.a. Lovenox, right? But direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs, are now being used more frequently in patients with acute venous thromboembolism and active cancer. Studies comparing their safety and efficacy with Lovenox are limited. In a recent randomized trial of over 1,100 patients, with cancer and VTE, the DOAC apixaban resulted in similar rates of recurrent VTE when compared with uh, Fragman, without any impact on major bleeding events. Apixaban is now considered a suitable alternative for low molecular weight heparin for treatment of VTE in patients with active cancer. Point Deliquis. Welcome to Rio Bravo Q-Week, the podcast of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program, recorded weekly from Bakersfield, California, the land where growing is happening everywhere. The Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program trains residents and students to prevent illnesses and bring health and hope to our community. Our mission is to seek, teach, and serve. Sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista, we are providing compassionate and affordable care to patients throughout Kern and Fresno counties since 1971. By three methods, we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is bitterest. Confucius. Welcome again, guys. Uh, Today, it's a little late. But uh, I'm glad that Dr. Saito stayed a little longer. We're going to try to teach you and entertain you today. So the quote that we just read, you know, it just made me think about a Spanish refrain. And I know Spanish refrains, sometimes they don't make sense in English, but it makes perfect sense for me. There is one that says, nobody learns on someone else's brain. And that means that, you know, you might learn from other people, but you don't learn the same way. You might be learning better by experience. But Confucius says that you can learn by reflection, by imitation, or by experience. So which way do you want to learn, dear residents? By reflection, by imitation, or by experience? You choose. And uh, today we have Dr. Saito. Again, he's uh, the newest faculty member in our, in our residency. And he was a chief resident, and I'm glad that he is going to talk to us today because he's, 
he has a lot of wisdom. So thank you, Dr. Saito, for being here. Of course. So can you introduce yourself? I know most people might know you, might remember you mm -hmm. from the episode Vaccine Hesitancy. But now can you give us a little um, re refreshment about who you are? Sure. So uh, let's, let's go ahead. I'm going to reintroduce myself. This is Stephen Saito. I'm a former Navy doctor. Spent six and a half years in the service before I finally decided to get out of there and rejoined civilian life. I've since graduated from uh, Rio Bravo Family Medicine, and I'm now, as you said, back on faculty here. Um, out of the ways that I developed my wisdom, I got to say, uh, probably mostly experienced, I guess that makes me uh, bitter, if I understood the quote correctly. Um, I'm also not a very intelligent man. As I prepared a a whole lecture for our medical students earlier today, and then I decided to do a completely unrelated topic for the podcast. If I had been a little bit wiser, I would have just done the same topic. Right. Okay. But you are just so wise that you you know you can talk about any topic. That's that's uh, that's the goal. Um, so, so we're gonna talk about uh, something this week, and um, so just introduce your topic. What do you? want to talk about this week. What do you learn this week? Well, actually, this week's topic is going to relate to my previous topic on here. Uh, I previously was on episode nine for vaccine hesitancy. There were some follow-up questions about autism, so I wanted to actually switch gears just a little bit and talk a little bit more focused on autism. Okay, so autism is a very good topic, very hot topic right now, because uh, we are seeing supposedly, and you're going to explain that probably later, uh, an increase in incidence of autism. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about the diagnosis criteria. So, all right, I'm, I'm going to, for all you people listening in, it's going to get a little dry for a bit because I'm going to go over some DSM criteria so we can actually properly diagnose our patients. Uh, the DSM criteria states that the child must have persistent deficits in three areas of social communication or interaction and at least two of four types of restricted or repetitive behaviors. It's important to understand that these criteria are not always about the child that has trouble making eye contact with you. So I'm going to go over these. Now, in the parts of areas of social communication and interaction, number one, deficits in social, emotional, reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah, I can, I can speak today. Um, so this might have something to do with a difficulty with back and forth conversations. They might have difficulty initiating or responding to social interactions. You might see them have like a reduced sharing of interest or emotions or affect. Number two, deficits in nonverbal communication behaviors. So this is where you get that classic um, has trouble with maintaining eye contact or they don't necessarily understand some of those uh, nonverbal cues of conversation. So if, uh, for example, I'm speaking with an adult with, with autism and I do my usual on getting up to go because this conversation is over and we just keep going because uh, the um, social cues weren't, weren't being picked up. Um, Number three, deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. So and you'll frequently see some of these children having difficulty having uh, maintaining friendships or developing friendships, or they won't have an, an interest in their peers. Um, they might have difficulty doing imaginative uh, plays. So the, the when little kids get together and they play make-believe and they play 
uh, I don't know, what do kids play these days other than Minecraft or Fortnite? So something where Roblox. We, yeah, there we go. So anything where you actually interact with other human beings and not via computer. So it's interesting because those questions are, you know, the questions that we normally ask on, on our CHTP uh, in our well child visits, and also they represent the M chat. So mm-hmm. that's perfect. Um, let's let's uh, move on to the next category, which is they have to get two or four of these of restricted repetitive patterns. So, number one, a stereotype to repetitive motor movements or use of objects or speech. So, you might see these kids lighting up toys or they might uh, repeat sounds over and over again or they might just use uh, idiosyncratic uh, phrases. Uh, Number two, insistence on sameness or inflexible adherence to routines or similar ritualized patterns of verbal or um, nonverbal behavior. So, for example, a child might have difficulty with um, uh, changing what type of clothes they wear. They might want to wear a very specific clothing on maybe uh, on a given day. So, Fridays are the day that I wear orange, or we we have to um, drive this particular route to and from school. If we take any sort of change of that, that might cause. Um, uh, difficulty, a poor, poor reaction, whether or not that's a tantrum or shutting down or something of that nature. Uh, number three is highly restricted or fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. So I'm sure you've watched a very special episode or something or something along those lines and the child might be overly interested in, say, trains or uh, some other very specific occupation that they can't get distracted from. Um, hyper or hypo react. Oh, sorry, number four. Hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of their their environment. So, they might, for example, have difficulty with certain sensations, like if they're eating and they refuse to eat like canned peaches because it has a slimy texture to it. They'll eat other things, but like very specifically, they won't eat the canned peaches or they won't eat um, other things that have a certain mouthfeel to it, or they might be unwilling to wear certain fabrics, or they might be very, very sensitive to sound. So whenever the vacuum cleaner goes on, they, they, they hide or elope or cover their ears. Um, it's worth noting about these criteria that they should be noticed or, or at least be present during the early developmental period. A lot of times it doesn't always get noticed. Um, it, it might get noticed by us in the primary care field when they come in and we do our routine screenings. But they might just say that Timmy is um, a little bit different and then they don't actually follow up on it until later in life when there's more greater impact. Um, the symptoms can uh, the symptoms should also be notable to cause some sort of significant impairment. That's that's another component of this. And importantly, we shouldn't be able to get a better, more appropriate diagnosis for some other reason why they might be having these instances. For example, um, intellectual developmental disorder or a global developmental delay. That that's not autism. So, everyone was just listening. I know you started to fall asleep because I just went over a whole bunch of criteria. So I need you to wake up. Hey, hey you, the poor medical student or resident who was listening was starting to get a little bit overwhelmed by raw criteria. Sorry about that. So the the child that you described right now, you know, it sounds like a very 
well, the, the thing is that you're going to talk about that later, probably. That it's a spectrum. But uh, if you see this kind of children, you know, in a restaurant, I feel like you 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 be you become very irritated, right? Yeah. Um, children with with um, some of these fixated issues uh, can can have a lot of difficulty in in social situations, particularly when there's a lot of change. And so, when you're at the restaurant, first off, a lot of times with families with with children with autism might are generally aware of of some of the limitations of their children so if they know that their restaurant behavior is going to be problematic they might find alternatives um, or they might have uh, certain techniques that I can get into a little bit later in the podcast that they can help uh, prepare their child for being able to go out and, and do stuff in public in fact that's one of the important therapies is doing things like social stories and so that way the, the child can plan ahead. Um, sometimes they'll even do like uh, test runs and stuff like that for like, say, for example, when they're going to come to the doctor's office, they can have everything planned out ahead. So that way it won't be an unexpected turn of events. Yeah. I mean, the the <clears throat> in the pop culture, you know, sometimes um, out, um, kids with autism, they're seen as like brilliant. You know, they're so smart and so special. And, um, you know, we know that some people with autism, they may have actually a very severe intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. So it's important to remember that, uh, you know, not, not everybody with autism is brilliant or super smart. Because we have these popular shows, you know, we have The Good Doctor. I don't know if you have seen it in HBO. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw one episode and it, it was like a super doctor, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, some people can have normal intelligence, you know, above normal and sometimes even below normal. I'm I'm not super happy sometimes with the way Hollywood presents it. Yes, it's nice that they present a a more positive um, uh, role models or aspects of some people with autism, but it does set an a um, level of expectation from the general populace because most people, when they get their information from their social media, from their movies, they don't necessarily have that firsthand experience. And so when people don't fit into uh, well-established boxes that that social media and, and movies and television and video games and Internet has, has taught them, it makes it a bit difficult for people with some of these issues. Yeah, so, okay, you gave a good introduction about how to diagnose a, a person or a patient with autism. So you want to expand on the follow-up from your podcast number nine, your episode? Sure. So um, just to refer back to it a little bit, in, in episode nine, we did go over a bit over the epidemiology and specifically vaccines in the, as they relate to autism, which is to say vaccines are not related to autism. I'm going to have to say that about 20 more times. We got into real big depth in that. The other thing is that we are noticing an increase in frequency of autism cases, but I suspect and and the medical community in general suspects it has more to do with the fact that we're doing a better job of screening, that we've expanded the diagnosis to cover more people, so that way that they're more likely to get the actual services that they need. Um, now, uh, I mean, let me talk a little bit more about the epidemiology. I want to give you some 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 additional numbers. Now, for 
boys are four times as likely as girls to have autism. Um, so there's also noted to be a little bit of a genetic component of it. As they've noted in twin studies, there's a familial component to it. But just because we have, for example, monozygotic or identical twins does not automatically mean that both of them will have autism. So there is some other component that's in there. Um, as far as actual numbers, somewhere between 140 and 1 in 500 has autism. So when you think about that and just doing a, a ballpark, that might be like around like a little under 1% of the, the patients who come through these doors fall somewhere on the spectrum. Um, there are some environmental factors that we think might be involved in a second hit. Again, not vaccines. Um, but there are some other things to consider. For example, there's a greater relative risk if there's older parents or if there's some chromosomal abnormality like fragile X. Certain medications taken during the prenatal period, such as valproic acid, are associated with an increased relative risk. Uh, as far as when symptoms present, it usually is around 18 months, give or take, and most are, are typically noted somewhere between 18 to 24 months. When the symptoms exceed the capacity of the patient to, to be able to manage. So 18 to, four, to 24 months, that's a good age. And actually that was in my board exam. Mm -hmm. So when do you normally do autism screening in kids? It's at 18 and then at 24 months. Mm -hmm. That's good. So, once again, I know that you're listening in on the radio. I need you to wake up because this is the part where I talk about the role of the primary care physician. <laughs> so, our role is not necessarily to make the diagnosis, although we should be aware of the diagnosis and be able to spot troubling concerning patterns for our patients. A comprehensive evaluation by appropriate tools is still best left to specialists who are well-trained in the field, most commonly developmental pediatricians, pediatric psychologists, psychiatrists, or pediatric neurologists. However, we have to recognize the signs and symptoms of autism and be able to do the appropriate screening. So what's the appropriate screening? I think we said it a few times, but even for children who appear neurotypical and whom parents are not concerned, routine screening should be implemented at ages 18 and 24 months. You heard it two, maybe three or four times already. That's important. That's a board's question. Go ahead and get it right. All right. What's your standardized tool, tools for it? Well, the standard one that we typically use is the MCHAT R slash F. It's validated as a first tier screening. It's available in multiple languages. So if you go to their website, because you have, for example, a Spanish-speaking patient and, and their parents, you can print it out in the appropriate language so that way you can make sure that they get it correctly. But if it's in like, I don't know, 40 different languages or something along those lines, you can use it for just about anyone. Importantly, it can be completed in about five minutes. And at least the initial questionnaire can be completed by the parent even before you're engaged. So, for example, they could be handed in the waiting room while they're waiting to be roomed. Or if your EHR has the appropriate um, electronic component, it can be potentially emailed as like a, a screener if such um, secure services are available through your EHR. Um, the questionnaire, once given, you, you could, when they bring it back in, there's that second component. So remember, it's the MCHAT R slash F. R is for revised because it was revised, and F is for follow-up. So if they have abnormal findings on the questionnaire, there are a structured set of follow-up questions that should be done prior to referring them to, say, a pediatric neurologist. Talking about uh, Roblox, hmm? 
No, my some people are texting me about Roblox right now. <laughs> Sorry for the the I, interruption. Yeah, there. I, I keep hearing these little tooty in the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as an example, um, it, the first question is: is if you point to something across the room, does your child look at it? So, if mom writes on the questionnaire, no. Um, it prompts a follow-up question. So then the, so what does your child do when when you point at an object across the room? And so they give seven or so typical responses. Um, a child might still pass if they were to like point at the object instead of look at it. Um, but it might, a greater concern might happen if, like for example, the child doesn't understand the gesture, and so they look at the finger instead of the object. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I do this uh, questionnaire, sometimes I've done it in the office, and, um, you know, some parents, they look weird at you, like, why are you asking me that, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just important to, to tell them to answer honestly, like, it's a yes or no. And the tricky part of this questionnaire is that some questions are answered yes, the normal is yes, and the normal is no. So uh, I think that's that's something, you know, tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are other standardized questionnaires, for example, the autism spectrum screening questionnaire that have been validated, but most of the other standardized questionnaires still require additional studies or are potentially better at finding other issues such as general intellectual disability. So at least at this time, I'm still going to recommend that we use the MCHAT R slash F. Now, uh, let's say that we now have the diagnosis of, of autism. So we, we did the appropriate screening. We sent them for additional um, evaluation to see what else can be done for them. And now parents are asking, well, what, what, can I, what can I do to make sure I get my child everything that I need? So if a child is less than three years old, the Early Childhood Technical Assistance Center may be of use to them. You can, um, this is just uh, nationwide. Uh, there's a website lo- located at ectacenter.org and has a contact list for coordinators that that may be able to connect parents with uh, services, for example, if they need additional evaluation. Um, Locally, we have the Kern Regional Center. Um, For those three and older, you can contact your local public school system, even for those that are not currently enrolled in school. So what does that mean? Your child has turned three. You're concerned that you might have some autism issues. Um, maybe your insurance is giving you difficulty because they're trying to refer to peds um, developmental and they're old enough that they're saying that it should be the school that pays for it instead of the insurance that pays for it. And they'll argue left and right. You can take your child to the local school system, contact them and say, I need this evaluation to be done. Um, that includes even for, for people who are not yet old enough to be in preschool or kindergarten or for people who, for for example, are in a private school, but they still need this evaluation. You can still get it done through your school. And I think that's very um, unique. I mean, me being from another country, you know, you get services in public schools, even though the kids, they, don't, they are not enrolled in that school, in public school. Like I can tell you by experience, you know, I have a kid who had a speech disability, or a speech delay, let's call it. He got evaluated in a public school, and he was getting actually some speech therapy before he was even old enough to go to that school. So that's something to remember, and some many of our residents might not be aware of that. And also, you can use other resources. In our case, in our residency, we have Dr. Rao. She is mm-hmm. wonderful. She knows a lot of resources, and you know, don't hesitate to ask her. You know where where she normally sends his patients to. Mm-hmm. 
Now, um, uh, this this next part's uh, specific to California, so I'm sorry for any of our folks who are across state lines who are going to be listening in. But in California, the Lanterman Act is very important. The Lanterman Act is the California law that gives people with de- developmental disabilities the right to services and supports the, the needs to live a more independent and normal life. In particular, your patient who you have a concern for autism may be eligible for Medi-Cal even if they might otherwise not be eligible, and they might be entitled to additional services. That that medical, Medi-Cal uh, eligibility might even be included for people who might not normally be able to receive Medi-Cal, for, for example, um, if their parents would otherwise be making too much money to qualify for Medi-Cal. Um, but as long as that the individual, the child, does not have like a huge trust fund or something like that that would disqualify them from Medi-Cal, it, they might be deemed appropriate for it based upon the child's income, which is presumably zero. Um, of course, for that, your best bet is still to go through the regional center for that. They can help do a lot of the paperwork, help set the your uh, patient up with all the necessary requirements. Um, also, because of this, because of the Lanternman Act, you might be uh, uh, able to get additional services above and beyond some of the things that we would refer them to. As an example, you might be able to get access to respite services for the family. So for those families who are tired and exhausted and need a little bit of time to, to have time just between the parents or something like that, to, to have a, a night off, so to speak, so they can go out on a date or something like that, there are respite services available for them, but they have to go through the appropriate channels. So I wonder if the California Children's Services also might assist these patients. I'm not sure about the criteria, but I know that uh, many kids who are, you know, low income and they spend a lot of money or their family spend a lot of money in medical care. So they might qualify for assistance from the California Children's Services, too. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about what else we can be doing for these patients now that they're in our primary care clinic. Because just because they have autism doesn't mean that they stop needing any of their standard medical care. Uh, we still need to do all of our routine primary care preventive services and screenings. Anticipatory guidance might need to be modified a little bit. For example, a little bit more time might need to be spent on safety issues. In particular, you might see some ch- some of these children with elopement issues. Elopement is when they just start running for it. They might try and break free in public areas. You need to be especially concerned in like near um, crosswalks and other situations when you're like near traffic. Yeah, and I, th- and I don't know if you're going to talk about medications, but they might need even medications, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, in that case, I would refer the patient to a specialist, a psychiatrist, if they need medication like for agitation or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Most definitely. As far as pharmacotherapy, especially as a second line after the behavioral interventions, I, I still would feel more comfortable having that go, that patient go to a ped psychiatrist or a ped neurologist or someone who specializes in patients with with these sort of um, developmental delays. Um, other things. Um, remember how I was saying earlier that sometimes people on the spectrum have difficulty with change? Unfamiliar settings, particularly things like doctor's offices where they're not routinely going to on a day-to-day basis can be very trying for them. And so 
There are certain things that they can be doing in order to prepare for their visit. Uh, social stories are a great, great option. Social stories are, are things like storybooks with pictures that you can read to the child ahead of the visit to tell them what to expect. So today we're going to the doctor's office. When we get there, we will be waiting in a line. Then we might be in the waiting room for a little bit. Then a nurse might come fetch us and take us to a place where they'll check my blood pressure and my temperature, and then they will bring me to a room where the nurse might ask me a few more questions, and then we might have to wait there before the doctor comes in and talks to us, and the doctor might talk to me and sit me up on the table so they don't have to bend over to see me, and they will look at my ears and my nose and my throat, and they'll listen to my heart and lungs, and they might have me do a few more things. And then if I'm very good, I might even get a sticker. Having a social story like this can be very helpful for them. Another technique might be a visual board, a, a, a visual checklist, pictures of things to expect. That if they keep doing it, maybe there's a reward at the end of it or a series of rewards throughout that visual board so they can mentally prepare for it and they, they can do these, these activities that are not very inherently rewarding but know that there will be something for them for all their hard work. So, and I think there is a key word here, is the ABA therapy. And I actually had to look it up because one of the patients, one day, they were requesting the service. My child needs ABA therapy. I was like, sure, let's do it. So, ABA stands for Applied Behavioral Analysis. And it's the, you know, the gold standard treatment for children with autism. Mm -hmm. um, applied Behavioral Analysis is a great thing. I'm going to take a, a moment right here and say that insurances do not cover it except for children with autism. So when you're trying to get these services for your patient, even if it might help the child with developmental delay, insurances will give you a very hard time unless you have the, that, that diagnosis on the chart, and they might not accept that diagnosis from a primary care provider. Even more of a reason to send them off to get the complete uh, evaluation from, from the specialist. So that's, that's a wonderful topic, Dr. Saito. So, um, you know, this knowledge is so important for us because we are going to encounter these kids for sure. We're going to have at least during residency more than five encounters or more than three encounters in a residency for three years. And even after you practice, uh, if you decide, and we hope that everybody decides to see children, so you're going to have to navigate this with these patients through, through the system. So, and can you tell me, Dr. Saito, like what resources, how do you get this knowledge? Sure. So uh, my cornerstone for, for going to do research is, is usually starts with like uh, verified websites and sources that collect actual honest-to-goodness data and studies. My usual go-to is up-to-date, as it is for most things, to just read articles and get suggestions for primary resources. Um, so going in their citations and going to the actual like sites and PubMed articles that they might be referencing. Um, other things that I like to go to, I like to go to the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization and, of course, the AFP. Um, and, of course, I did for this one go take a look at a couple other resources. I did actually look up a, a social story uh, book for, for going to the doctor's office. Uh, I went to some of the local uh, resources that we have here in Curran, like the Autism Society and 
and uh, looked up the Kern Regional Center to see what else they have. Of course, during this COVID epi- uh, pandemic, they're having some of their own issues right now, as as we all are. Um, but it's important to get a variety of resources and input and make sure that you're getting them from at least reasonable, well-cited, well-documented areas. Well, I think if we mention up-to-date this often, I think we should request up-to-date to give us some compensation. Because <laughs> we are giving free advertisement in every episode. But it's a great resource. So I'm glad that you, you mentioned it too. And so we already mentioned Eliquis, and now we're mentioning up-to-date. Mm-hmm. So we hope we can get the paycheck yeah. in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Saito. Thanks for staying a little longer today. And, um, you know, autism is always a very interesting topic to talk about. Um, is, there, is there anything that you want to say to finish this part of the podcast? So I'm, I'm just going to take a moment here to do like a little bit of a side and a little bit of hu- uh, human to human speak right now. Um, children with autism are children. Um, it's, it's important to keep that in mind. It's a condition, but it's not the end of the world. Um, people with autism go on to do great things. They can go on to live rich, fulfilling lives. Um, I know that it can be stressful to a family, but you can still have a loving human being with autism. I wanted to make sure that's clear. Um, in part because you hear, I don't know, uh, these Facebook groups that are so against uh, vaccinations, because we had that talk before, and how they they go on and on and on about how awful autism is. But the truth is, these these are children. They're they're wonderful human beings, and the fact that you would say something like that you'd be more willing to have a dead child than a child with autism is it just a terrible reflection on people um so it's important to remember that these people are real that they can be happy and healthy and and go on to do outstanding things yeah definitely that's that's an excellent way to end this part of the podcast i remember having a patient um with about 40 40 40 years old and he has a you know a beautiful caring mother and I, I can see that connection between those two human beings and it's a beautiful relationship that they have so thank you so much dr saito for discussing this with us today have a nice week guys bye bye speaking medical When someone rejects a diagnosis of mental illness, it is tempting to say that he is in denial. But someone with acute mental illness may not be thinking clearly enough to consciously choose denial. They may instead be experiencing a lack of insight or lack of awareness. The formal medical term for this condition is anosognosia, from the Greek meaning to not know a disease. As humans, we are constantly updating our reality and perception. Think about it this way. When you get a sunburn because you spent your weekend at the beach, you expect yourself to look red when you look in the mirror. You have updated your perception of what your reality is. You now expect to appear more red. This update requires a functioning frontal lobe of the brain. When this is not working properly, you can lose your ability to update what is real. Everyone else can tell you received a sunburn, 
but you are unable to recognize that you have one. In essence, this is anosognosia. This lack of insight into the disease is fairly common in those with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. When a person is in this state, they become very difficult to treat because they believe their perceptions of reality are what we should be perceiving as well. These people frequently will stop taking their medications because in their mind there's no reason to continue them. They have no disease. People with anosognosia often fluctuate on how aware they are of their disease. This can cause strain on their support system and relationships with friends and families. Since our perceptions feel accurate, we conclude that our loved, loved ones are lying or making a mistake. If family and friends insist they are right, the persons with the illness may get frustrated or angry or even begin to avoid them altogether. When maintaining a relationship with a person with anosognosia, it is important to realize that their perception of reality is as real to them as our reality is to us. Remember the word, anosognosia. Bye. This is Dr. Carranza on our section, Spanish, por favor. This week's word is cansancio. Cansancio means tiredness or fatigue. The verb cansar comes from the Latin word cansare, which means to deviate or to bend from a path or trajectory. Interestingly, back in the day, cansancio began to be used to describe taking a break from a trip, taking a break due to exhaustion, or to rest because you're tired. Patients can come to you with the complaint, Doctor, tengo cansancio, or Doctor, estoy cansado, which means, Doctor, I am tired, or I feel tired. Cansancio is a very common complaint in clinic, but it's not very specific. So the question, se siente cansado, which means, are you feeling tired, normally is answered with a yes, more so if you're a resident. <laughs> Feeling tired may be physiologic, but feeling tired continually with no relief after rest and with no identifiable cause can lead you to start an investigation. Ask if this cansancio is new or chronic. Think of differentials such as thyroid disease, anemia, sleep apnea, acute viral illness, and continue with your workup. Now you know the Spanish word of the week, cansancio. I used up all my sick days, so I called him dead. Ha ha ha. Not really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Statistically, 9 out of 10 injections are in vain. Right? I mean, I don't, in, in, I don't get it. It's in vain, like in the veins, or it's in vain, like, use, like not. In the purpose was not. Oh, oh, okay, 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 in vain. Okay. It was in vain. <laughs> okay, got it now. <laughs> so, in vain, in vain. Yeah, the same. And. You know what? PMS jokes aren't funny. Period. And what's a PMS? Postmenstrual. Premenstrual. Pre pre Premenstrual. Yeah, premenstrual syndrome. So PMS jokes aren't funny. Period. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's that's funny. <laughs> All right. Do you have any other one? Uh, this one is good. What? He was wheeled into the operation room and then had a change of heart. Uh, I mean, he changed his mind. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. 
It's a transplant. It's a transplant. Okay. <laughs> it's a change of heart. <laughs> it's a change of heart. Okay. So he didn't change his mind. It changed his heart. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I don't find health-related puns funny anymore since I started suffering from irony deficiency. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Rava. Today's jokes were irony deficient. Okay, thank you. Now we conclude our episode number 25, Autism with Saito. Dr. Saito explained the key features of autism spectrum disorder and reminded us to screen at 18 and 24 months by using MCHAT. Healthcare of patients with ASD requires a multidisciplinary team, and you can be part of that team. For some reason, we decided to expand on the word anasognosia. Cameron explained that anasognosia may fluctuate in intensity, causing difficulty in relationships with family and friends. Dr. Carranza gave us a good explanation about cansancio, which means tiredness, a good word to describe how we feel after a busy shift like today. Tomorrow, the sun will rise again over the San Joaquin Valley and we'll continue to learn and grow. This is the end of Rio Bravo Q Week. We say goodbye from Bakersfield, a special place in the beautiful Central Valley of California, United States, a land where growing is happening everywhere. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaciervista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash QWeek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. Our podcast team this week is Hector Ariaza, Steven Saito, Daniela Amodio, Claudia Carranza, Valerie Savelli, and audio by Saraj Amrutia. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>